Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On a balmy night in July 1995, a hot new country singer took the stage at Opryland Park in Nashville, Tennessee. Dressed in tight jeans, high black pumps, and a gauzy black cape, she didn't look like a traditional country singer. But thousands of fans screaming her name that night didn't seem to care. Faith Hill was part of a new generation of female country singers who dominated the 1990s, singing songs about coming-of-age romances, wide-open spaces, and all-night drives. These women changed the look and the sound of country music, paving the way for singers like Casey Musgraves, Miranda Lambert, and many more of today's artists. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the golden era of female country artists. The revolution in country music that brought us female singers like Faith Hill began at the beginning of the 1990s with a native of Monticello, Georgia. Growing up in the small city 60 miles south of Atlanta, Trisha Yearwood always wanted to be a singer. She loved the music of country legends Hank Williams and Kitty Wells. And by the time she hit middle school, she was also a fan of the Allman Brothers and the Eagles. But her absolute favorite was Linda Ronstadt. Pursuing a career in music, though, seemed impossible to Yearwood. Nashville was surely a pipe dream. So instead, after junior college, she enrolled in a business program at the University of Georgia. She figured she might become an accountant. As it turns out, Yearwood wasn't happy. So in 1986, she transferred to Belmont University in Nashville, which offered a major in the music business. She wasn't exactly chasing her dream of being a singer, but she was getting closer. Yearwood got married, graduated, and landed a job as a secretary for a record company. From her desk, she watched aspiring musicians come and go as they tried to land record deals. She was inspired, and Yearwood finally began to chase her dream so she wouldn't wake up one day and regret it. Over the next few months, she sang at local clubs and recorded a demo tape. During that time, she met another up-and-comer by the name of Garth Brooks. Then, in 1990, she was spotted at a club showcased by Tony Brown, the hottest record producer on Music Row. He immediately signed her to MCA Nashville. When her debut single, She's in Love with the Boy, was released in March 1991, it quickly reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot Country Singles chart, which had never happened before. Trisha Yearwood was the first female artist to have a debut single reach the top of the country charts. The song written by John Imes tells the story of Katie and Tommy, a teenage couple who get engaged. Katie's dad doesn't think Tommy is smart enough for his daughter, but in some classic country songwriting, Katie's mom has the last word. The success of the song put a lot of pressure on Yearwood to prove that she had staying power and wasn't just a one-hit wonder. 
Her self-titled debut double album was released in July 1991, and it lived up to expectations. It included three other hit singles, That's What I Like About You, The Woman Before Me, and Like We Never Had a Broken Heart, which was co-written by Garth Brooks, who sang backup vocals on the track. At this point, Garth Brooks was already massive. He had released his blockbuster breakthrough album, No Fences, and was on the verge of releasing his equally successful Rope in the Wind. When he went on tour to promote Rope in the Wind in the fall of 91, he asked Yearwood to be his opening act. The exposure and the success of her debut album made Yearwood the toast of Nashville. With fame came challenges, though. Yearwood divorced her husband after four years of marriage, which led to rumors that she was having an affair with Garth Brooks. The pair did eventually get married in 2005, but at the time, they vehemently denied having an affair. Yearwood also left her Nashville management team and signed with a Los Angeles-based company, which had critics saying she had let the success get to her head. And there was lots of talk that Yearwood would make the leap from country to pop. But when her second album, Hearts and Armor, was released in 1992, she proved them wrong and stayed true to her country roots. That album included the hit single, Walk Away Joe, which featured Eagles singer Don Henley on backing vocals. Incidentally, the video for Walk Away Joe starred 23-year-old Matthew McConaughey, who was an unknown actor at the time, trying to break into Hollywood. Yearwood was unstoppable. She dominated country music throughout the 1990s, with a total of seven albums during that decade, which either went gold or platinum. She had a string of top 10 hits, with six number ones, including X's and O's and American Girl, Thinking About You, and Believe Me Baby, I Lied. While Trisha Yearwood was making history in Nashville back in 91, another female singer was also doing her best to break into the scene. Martina Schiff started performing when she was just eight years old with her family band in a tiny town in rural Kansas. She also grew up listening to Hank Williams, and her idols were Merle Haggard and Linda Ronstadt. After high school, she moved to Wichita, Kansas, singing songs five nights a week for a couple of rock bands, eventually meeting sound engineer John McBride. In 1988, the pair were married, and she took his name, becoming Martina McBride. The couple moved to Nashville in 1990, and John soon got a job as a sound man for Garth Brooks. Martina traveled with them selling t-shirts on the Brooks tour that included Trisha Yearwood as the opening act. All the while, McBride dreamed of having her own singing career. She mailed out demo tapes to record companies and stamped the envelopes with the words requested materials in an effort to get A&R executives to at least open them up. Then it happened. Three weeks after she dropped off a big purple envelope at RCA, they called and invited her to perform at a live showcase. After the event, the record company signed her to a deal. When McBride's first album, The Time Has Come, was released the next year in 1992, she was touted as the new Trisha Yearwood. McBride also had the potential to become a crossover sensation. Just like Yearwood, she mixed old-school country with a new country pop sound. 
And like Yearwood, McBride's debut included a song with Garth Brooks on backing vocals called Cheap Whiskey. Till the day that he McBride also went on a world tour with Brooks as his opening act in 1993 and 94. No longer was she relegated to selling concert t-shirts. During that tour, McBride released her second album, The Way That I Am, which included several hit singles, including the song Independence Day, which today is one of her signature songs. Written by Gretchen Peters, it tells a dramatic story about domestic violence, which ends when an abused wife sets fire to her home. The song was a bold statement on domestic violence, shining light on the dangers some women face. But for some country radio stations, it was too much, and they decided to pull the song from rotation. It wasn't an outright ban, but there was a lot of pushback. Still, the song climbed to number 12 on the U.S. Billboard Hot Country Songs in August of 94, and it cleaned up at the Country Music Association's award show, picking up trophies for Song and Video of the Year. Despite the poignant lyrics, the song has often been mistaken as a 4th of July anthem, and occasionally it's been co-opted by Republican pundits and politicians. For example, Sean Hannity used it as a theme song on his radio show from 2001 to 2014, while Sarah Palin played it as a walk-on song during her vice presidential campaign in 2008. Both McBride and songwriter Gretchen Peters have not been thrilled with the song being used as a patriotic anthem. In fact, Peters was so mad that Palin was using the song during the 2008 presidential race that she donated her royalties from it to Planned Parenthood in the name of Sarah Palin, who campaigned on a firm anti-abortion stance. It wasn't the last time Martina McBride would sing about domestic abuse and other challenges of womanhood. For example, her 1997 song, Broken Wing, focused on a woman who feels trapped in an abusive relationship. It reached number one on the Billboard US Hot Country Songs chart and number 61 on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming the first of many crossover hits for McBride. During the 90s, she released a total of six albums, all but one went platinum. In addition to her songs about some of the harsh realities of being a woman, she was also known for using her powerful voice to belt out fun, upbeat tracks and love songs, similar to another female country star who burst onto the scene in 1993. Audrey Faith Perry was raised in Star, Mississippi, population 1500. She says it's the kind of place where people hang out at the gas station and everyone knows everybody. Perry started singing in church at the age of three. Then at the age of 16, after seeing Reba McIntyre perform live, she vowed to become a country superstar like McIntyre. After high school, Perry enrolled at a community college in Mississippi, but dropped out during her first semester. 
And in 1986, at the age of 19, she moved to Nashville to pursue her dream of becoming a country singer. Problem was, she had no songs, no demo tape, and no contacts. So she took a job as a secretary at a publishing company owned by legendary Nashville singer Gary Morris. There, she met lots of people in the industry. And when one of them overheard her singing along to the office radio, she was encouraged to get out from behind the desk and in front of the spotlight. And that's what she did, performing at bars and clubs around Nashville until she was discovered at the famous Bluebird Cafe by an executive for Warner Brothers Records who signed her to the label in 1991. In the meantime, Audrey Faith Perry had married Nashville songwriter Daniel Hill in 1988 and was now going by the name Faith Hill. Her debut album, Take Me As I Am, was released in October 1993. And not since Trisha Yearwood's debut three years earlier had a female country star stormed the charts. In between the success of Yearwood and Hill's debut, Martina McBride and other female country artists had made some waves. But country music was still mainly dominated by male singers like Brooks and Dunn, Billy Ray Cyrus, and Toby Keith, who had all vaulted to superstardom during that time. Faith Hill changed all that. Her first single, Wild One, climbed to number one on Billboard's U.S. Hot Country Songs chart by January 1994, where it rained for four weeks. Her second single from that album also went to number one. It was a reimagined version of the song Peace of My Heart, made famous by Janis Joplin. All of Faith Hill's dreams had come true. And to top it off, in 1994, she went on tour opening for her idol Reba McIntyre. But things weren't completely rosy for Hill. That same year, she divorced her husband Daniel Hill after six years of marriage. Then, Hill suffered a ruptured blood vessel on her vocal cords and required surgery, which delayed the release of her second album. Finally, in August 1995, Hill released It Matters to Me, an album filled with songs about women's struggles and triumphs, like Someone Else's Dreams and A Man's Home is His Castle, as well as fun songs like Let's Go to Vegas. It Matters to Me spawned five top 10 singles and solidified Hill's place in country music. It also led to a concert tour that changed Hill's life forever. In March 1996, Faith Hill began the spontaneous combustion tour with fellow Red Hot Country star Tim McGraw. They were both in other relationships at the time, but their attraction to each other quickly became obvious. So they ended those other relationships and started dating. Three months later, McGraw proposed to Hill backstage, and in October 1996, they were married. Hill took the next few years off to rest and start a family, but her career was far from over. In 1998, she returned with Gusto, her third studio album called Faith, including the smash hit single, This Kiss. Kiss. 
This kiss was Hill's first crossover success, reaching number seven on the Hot 100 and number three on the Hot Adult Contemporary chart. The song cleaned up during award season, winning multiple trophies, including Best Female Vocalist for Hill at the Academy of Country Music Awards in 1999. Hill followed it up with the album Breathe, which included the sexy single of the same name. The video for the song, which featured Hill rolling around in a bed dressed only in a sheet, was considered too racy by some more conservative Nashville industry insiders. But nonetheless, the video and the song, which became Hill's first and only number one on the Hot Adult Contemporary chart, helped make Hill a true crossover star. The album Breathe won three Grammys, including Best Country Vocal Performance, Best Country Album, and Best Country Collaboration with vocals for the single Let's Make Love, which Hill performed with her husband, Tim McGraw. Along with Faith Hill, there was another crossover queen from the 90s that changed country music forever. She started off as a shy, poor kid raised by her Irish-Canadian mom and Ojibwa father in Timmins and Sudbury, Ontario. Eileen Twain, the second oldest of five kids in a blended family, showed talent as a singer by the time she was three. She listened to her parents' favorites, Willie, Waylon, and Dolly, but also The Supremes and Stevie Wonder. As a little girl, Twain was shy and unsure of her talents, but her mom pushed her to perform. She played guitar and sang at community centers, senior homes, and at a bar inside a hotel in Timmins. After high school, Eileen moved to Toronto to pursue music. But in 1987, tragedy struck. When Eileen was 21, her parents died in a head-on collision with a fully loaded logging truck. She immediately rushed back from Toronto to care for her younger siblings. Eileen worried that her music career might be over before it had started. But with a little luck, she landed a job singing Broadway hits and jazz standards at the Deerhurst Resort in Muskoka, Ontario. The steady gig allowed her to support her sister and stepbrothers and hone her skills as a performer. After a few years at the resort, she put together a demo tape and her first manager arranged a showcase for record label executives. Her siblings were now old enough to be on their own, and Twain was ready to spread her wings. The showcase landed her a deal with Mercury Nashville Records, who suggested a name change. Eileen became Shania, which means I'm on my way in Ojibwe. In 1993, Shania Twain released her self-titled debut, which only contained one song written by Twain. Critics said there was nothing special about the album, calling it unfocused and forgettable fluff. But the video for her first single, What Made You Say That, was a different story. In it, Twain twirled around on a beach in a midriff-bearing outfit that showed off her belly button. Something that might have been familiar in Madonna and Janet Jackson videos, but not so much in country videos. It was enough to make Twain stand out in the competitive Nashville landscape. It also got the attention of a legendary music producer. Mutt Lang was nearly 20 years older than Twain. He had made a name for himself working with everyone from ACDC and Def Leppard to Brian Adams and Michael Bolton. He was mesmerized by Shania and was determined to work with her. After several months of long-distance phone calls, they met in Nashville. And three months later, they were married. 
The pair immediately began working on Twain's follow-up album, and this time she either wrote or co-wrote all but one song with Lang. The Woman and Me, released in February 1995, was a massive hit. Twain, with her rock sensibilities, fine-tuned by her husband and producer Mutt Lang, was a crossover sensation. The Woman and Me held the number one spot on the country albums chart for 29 weeks, while peaking at number five on the Billboard 200. It contained eight hit singles, including Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under and Any Man of Mine, which became Shania's first number one single. Without even going on tour to promote the album, The Woman and Me sold over 4 million copies by the end of 1995, putting her in the same league with female country legends like Patsy Cline, Winona Judd, and Reba McIntyre. It won Best Country Album at the 38th Annual Grammys in 1995 and Album of the Year at the CMAs in 96. Shania was at the top of the world, but she wasn't without detractors. Entertainment Weekly called The Woman and Me one of the worst country albums in a decade. Singer-songwriter Steve Earle called Twain the highest-paid lap dancer in Nashville. And others said that Mutt Lang was the Svengali behind the album's success, and Twain was just a puppet. Industry insiders pointed to her decision not to go on tour as proof she had no real talent. But Twain defended the decision by saying she wanted to wait until she had more original material to perform. Soon, she was also accused of exaggerating details of her backstory. A front-page article published in her hometown newspaper, the Timmins Daily Press, in April 1996, claimed that Twain had been untruthful about her background. In particular, it said that Twain's claims of being part Ojibwe were wrong, because Jerry Twain was not her biological father, he was her stepfather. In response, the singer put out a statement clarifying that after Jerry Twain adopted her, she became legally registered as 50% North American Indian. She said the heritage was in her heart and soul, and she was proud of it. But it wasn't just that. Some in Nashville weren't ready for Shania. Nashville's old guard didn't like her unapologetic spirit and in-your-face lyrics and attitude. And they resented the fact that she wasn't a typical country star wearing traditional country clothes. With her bare midriffs and sexy outfits, she pushed the envelope in ways country music hadn't seen before. In other words, she wasn't authentic enough. She was too commercial. Despite the noise and negativity, Twain and Lang plowed ahead with her third studio album, which was released with high expectations in November 1997. Come On Over was another fun, high-energy rock-infused album. With lots of attitude, it pushed country boundaries even further. Before its release, her record label boasted the album was so good, it might outsell Garth Brooks' 1990 mega-monster album, No Fences. Some critics scoffed at the suggestion, but not for long. Come On Over had an incredible 12 hit singles. It went on to sell 40 million copies, doubling sales of No Fences, and making it the highest-selling country album of all time. It contains many of Shania's signature songs, including That Don't Impress Me Much and this classic. Attraction. 
like a woman. According to Pitchfork, Come On Over set a new standard for pop country crossovers and started a new chapter over who gets to be country and make country music, kicking open opportunities for a new generation of singers. There was another young singer from the 90s who's also credited with paving the way for young women in country. Without her, there might never have been a Taylor Swift. Leanne Rimes was just 13 when she shot to fame in 1996 with the release of her debut album, Blue, which had a more traditional country sound than Shania Twain. Rimes, who was born in Jackson, Mississippi and raised mainly in Texas, was on a fast track to stardom from a very young age. She was just eight years old when she began to bring down the house every Saturday night at Johnny High's Country Music Review. At 11, she sang the national anthem at a Dallas Cowboys game. That's when she caught the attention of legendary Dallas DJ and songwriter Bill Mack. He was so blown away by rhymes that he dusted off a song he wrote nearly 40 years earlier to see if she wanted to record it. Mack wrote the song Blue in 1958. He had always hoped that Patsy Cline would record it, but she died in a plane crash in 1963 before getting a chance. Mac thought that Rhymes would be perfect for the song. Initially, Rhymes' dad, Wilbur, rejected Blue. He said the lyrics were too grown up. In fact, after Rhymes recorded a demo of the song, he threw it in the garbage. But legend has it, Rhymes took the tape out of the garbage and redid it, adding in her now famous yodel. The recording eventually found its way to Curb Records president Mike Curb, who took it on a family vacation. He was so mesmerized by Blue, he stopped at a gas station and called Rhymes' dad from a payphone. In 1995, he signed Rhymes to Curb, and she set to work on making music. When her first single debuted in June 1996, the comparisons to Patsy Cline were immediate. Rhymes was lauded for her clear and powerful voice. Others, however, predicted she was a novelty act that would fade quickly. And some radio stations were reluctant to play Blue, saying what could a 13-year-old possibly know about heartbreak? But fans didn't seem bothered by her young age. Rhymes released her album a month later, and it debuted at number one on the Billboard Country Album Chart, making her the first female country artist to have a debut album enter at number one. The album, which had multiple hit singles in addition to Blue, held the top spot on the country charts for 28 weeks. And it did pretty well on the Billboard 200, peaking at number three. In February 1997, the country pop sensation, who was now 14, made history yet again when she became the youngest person ever to win a Grammy. Picking up her trophy for Best New Artist, she came on stage looking very much the kid she was. Oh my gosh, I never expected this at all. This, uh, this award means more to me than anything in this world. Um, I want to thank um, my mom and dad and La Walker for everything they've done for me. Um, I want to thank all the fans and all of, all of radio for playing my music. Rhymes also picked up the Grammy for Best Female Country Vocal Performance for her rendition of Blue. 
It was a busy time for the teenager who stopped attending traditional high school classes in favor of homeschooling. In addition to appearing at award shows, she had her own television special on the Disney Channel and went on tour with Alan Jackson and Vince Gill, appearing in over 200 shows. During all of that, she still had time to record another album. But it wasn't what people were expecting. You Light Up My Life was released in September 1997 and was mainly filled with remakes of classic adult contemporary songs. It seemed like an incredibly odd choice for a follow-up to Blue. In addition to a cover of You Light Up My Life, there were remakes of The Rose, Amazing Grace, and Bridge Over Troubled Water. It also included Rhyme's version of the song How Do I Live, which had been recorded that year by Trisha Yearwood as well. A fact that led to one of the more awkward moments in music history. The story goes that Rhymes was asked to record the song for the movie Con Air, starring Nicolas Cage. But at the last minute, movie executives decided that Rhymes was too young. So they turned to Yearwood, who recorded it instead. But Rhymes' record label had already planned to include it as a single on her upcoming album. So they went ahead and recorded it too. Both singers released their version of the song on the same day, May 27, 1997. And at the Grammys the next year, they were both nominated for Best Country Female Vocal Performance. Something that had never happened before. Two people nominated for the same song in the same year. Trisha Yearwood won the Grammy that night, but Rhymes' version remained a fan favorite on the country charts and spent 69 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, which was a record at the time. Looking back at the incident, Rhymes told Associated Press that she felt betrayed. Not by the fans, but by people in the business. And it wouldn't be the last time she would feel that way. In May 2000, Rhymes filed a lawsuit against her father, Wilbur Rhymes, and Lyle Walker. Both men had served as co-managers of Rhymes' career. And according to the suit, they had defrauded her of approximately $7 million. Among other things, the men allegedly duplicated and augmented their manager and producer fees over a five-year period. Wilbur Rhymes filed a counterclaim against his daughter, calling her a spoiled brat. Adding to that, Leanne Rhymes filed a lawsuit to terminate her contract with Curb Records. It was incredibly messy. But in 2002, just before Rhymes was set to marry her first husband, she decided it was time to reconcile with her father. A few days before the wedding, their lawsuits were settled on undisclosed terms. And Wilbur and Leanne danced together for the traditional father-daughter dance. Rhymes also settled with ex-manager Lyle Walker. Again, the details were confidential. As for her suit against Curb Records, a judge ruled against Rhymes, refusing to void her contract. She remained with Curb Records until 2016, when she signed with RCA UK. Despite the challenges and controversies that Rhymes endured, which later dominated gossip columns and included accusations of infidelity and a messy divorce, her role in the country music revolution of the 90s cannot be denied. 
She, along with the other female singers mentioned in this episode, carved out a space for women in Nashville. Each of them had unique styles and brought different things to the table, but together, they made a complete picture of country music in the 90s. Well, almost complete. There was room for at least one more revolutionary style, and it would break all the rules. Emily and Marty Strayer were in high school and college, respectively, when they formed the first version of the Dixie Chicks, which played traditional bluegrass music. They joined up with two older musicians, Robin Lynn Macy and Laura Lynch, who shared vocal duties in the band. Together, they released an independent album in 1990 called Thank Heavens for Dale Evans. But when they evolved into a more modern country band, Robin Lynn Macy decided to leave. In 1995, the Chicks signed a development deal with Sony Nashville, under one condition though. The label wanted Emily and Marty to drop Laura Lynch. Enter Natalie Maines, whose father had played steel guitar with the Chicks for a couple of years. When he heard they were looking for a new lead singer, he slipped them Natalie's demo tape. When she was hired, Nashville insiders and some reviewers weren't always kind to Natalie, essentially calling her a Nepo baby. And it got worse. She was dubbed, quote, a chubby loudmouth. And one reviewer said she blurred the line between skank and swank. Still, the trio pushed ahead and released their first album together in 1998. Wide Open Spaces sounded like nothing else out there. It was steeped in traditional bluegrass music with sisters Marty and Emily on fiddle and banjo. Add in singer Natalie Maine's irreverent take on country, and the chicks, as they are now known, spoke to core country fans as well as listeners of pop and even alt-rock. On the back of singles like I Can Love You Better, There's Your Trouble, and the title track Wide Open Spaces, the album would go on to sell 12 million copies. It also earned the trio an Academy of Country Music Award for Best Album in May 1999, along with trophies for Best New Duet or Group and Best Duet or Group ending the seven-year stranglehold that Brooks and Dunn had on the award. We can't say what it feels like to win the Brooks and Dunn Award. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> the chicks picked up their hardware dressed in electric pastel bell-bottoms and enough feathers to make Harry Styles jealous. And that was the thing about the chicks. It wasn't just their music that set them apart. It was also their look. Once Natalie Maines joined the band, sisters Marty and Emily decided it was time to give up the retro cowgirl outfits they'd been known for. No more fringe and spangles, they adopted a style that fashion designer Todd Oldham called punkin, a combination of country and punk, which meshed with the group's fun-going attitude. It was so popular that fans across the country often came to their shows with hairstyles and fashions inspired by the chicks. In August 1999, the band released their landmark album, Fly. At the time, Rolling Stone music critic Rob Sheffield called the album Country Radio's Gift to the World. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart, which I must point out is an all-genre chart. And this time, five of the album's 13 tracks were co-written by at least one member of the group, opposed to Wide Open Spaces, which only had one song attributed to the trio. And it was those songs that helped define the Chicks as the new face of country. Songs like Cowboy Take Me Away and Ready to Run, 
as well as the song Sin Wagon, which Rolling Stone called the barnstormer meets thrash metal centerpiece of the album. But there was one song on the album that the record label was reluctant to release as a single. Goodbye Earl was written by Dennis Lind, who had also penned the 1972 Elvis hit Burning Love. Over the years, Lind had actually written a string of songs which featured an unlikable character named Earl. Finally, the songwriter decided to knock off Earl in a song about two longtime friends, Marianne and Wanda, who decided to kill Wanda's abusive husband, Earl. In the early 90s, a band called Sons of the Desert recorded Goodbye Earl for an album on Epic Records, but the song never made it onto the album. A few years later, the Chicks claimed the song and recorded it for the album Fly. Again, it wasn't going to be a single, but then the Chicks decided to play it at the Grammys in 2000, so the label relented and released it as the album's third single. The album, incidentally, included a disclaimer that said, the chicks do not advocate premeditated murder, but do love getting even. All jokes aside, the song caused a pretty big fuss. At least 20 radio stations refused to play it, and other stations went so far as to hold town meetings to gauge public reaction before making a decision on whether to air it or not. Among those that played it, some stations chose to run it alongside a message to victims of domestic abuse that included a 24-hour hotline. Despite the controversy, the song was hugely popular, which was heightened by a campy music video that starred Lauren Hawley as Marianne, Jane Krakowski as Wanda, and Dennis Franz as Earl. Of course, this wasn't the last time the chicks would be embroiled in controversy. In 2003, they were essentially disowned by country music for comments Natalie Maines made about George W. Bush. Still, without the chicks, country music would have a massive hole in it. There would be no Carrie Underwood, Miranda Lambert, Maren Morris, or even Taylor Swift, who said she first learned to play guitar with their music. The Chicks and the other women covered in this episode were all part of a golden age for female country artists. And there were many, many more women dominating Nashville in the 90s, including Leanne Womack, Terry Clark, Jody Messina, Sarah Evans, Patricia Conroy, and Michelle Wright. This revolution peaked around 1998, when nine different female artists had number one singles on the Billboard country chart, dominating the top spot for 21 of the 52 weeks that year. Compare that to 2022, when zero female artists held the top spot as bro country continues to dominate. Bro country is a trend that began in the 2010s, when artists like Florida Georgia Line and Luke Bryan took over country charts and radio airwaves. In fact, a study by the advocacy group Woman Nashville revealed a 66% decline in the number of songs by women between 2000 and 2018. The ratio of songs by men versus women 
jump from 2 to 1 in 2000 to 10 to 1 in 2018. So the question is why? Well, no one seems to know for sure. But there's a belief that during the 90s, women in country were able to dominate because there weren't the type of restrictions that seem to be present today. It's well known that a narrative exists in country music now that limits radio airplay for women artists. For example, radio programmers are told that songs by female artists shouldn't be played back to back. This type of thinking was highlighted in a May 2015 interview when a radio consultant encouraged program directors to limit the number of songs by women on their playlists if they wanted to achieve better ratings. Keith Hill told Country Aircheck Weekly, a trade publication, that if country music was a salad, male performers should be the lettuce and women should be the tomatoes, just a garnish. The comments led to something referred to now as Tomato Gate, and it galvanized a movement led by female country singers, including 90s star Martina McBride, who proudly wore a t-shirt with the word tomato printed on the front. The tomato shirt was so popular, she began selling it, as well as ones that read Tomato Lover. All proceeds went to Team McBride, which supports equal rights for women in the music industry. As for the other women artists in this episode, they all continue to do great things. Trisha Yearwood, who remains married to Garth Brooks, expanded her success in the music business into a lifestyle empire that includes a clothing line, a home collection, pet products, as well as an Emmy award-winning cooking show on the Food Network. In 2019, she released her 15th studio album called Every Girl. Faith Hill and Tim McGraw are also still married. They have frequently toured together and in 2017 collaborated on the album The Rest of Our Life. And of course, in 2021, the couple starred in the Yellowstone prequel 1883. Shania Twain took 15 years off from the music business from 2002 to 2017. During that time, she and husband Mutt Lang went through a messy divorce following an affair he had with Twain's best friend. But the singer is back in the saddle these days with her sixth studio album set to be released in February 2023. It will be followed by the Queen of Me tour, which kicks off the next month. The Chicks overcame the George Bush controversy and went on to become the best-selling U.S. female band of all time, with more than 30 and a half million albums sold. Following a 14-year hiatus, they released the band's eighth studio album, Gaslighter, in 2020. In May 2023, the Chicks head to the wide-open spaces of Las Vegas, where they will host a six-night residency at the Zappos Theatre. Thanks for listening to this look back at the golden age of female country artists. And thanks to listener Dustin Harder, who suggested this topic. I always love hearing your suggestions, so please send me a message anytime through social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That90sPodcast. You can also drop me an email. The address is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.